0: Next up, a story about the most personal kind of subterfuge. Our own Liz Mac spoke to Mike Siv. Snap Judgement.
1: Nine-year-old Mike was sitting on the couch at home in San Francisco, watching a movie with his mom.
0: And I guess somehow she was just too tired. Um, She fell asleep. And all of a sudden, I hear a... It's like somebody is choking her. I know she has a nightmare, but I don't know what to do. She's just squirming, like moving around. And then she's, she's just trying to break free from something. She wakes up, it's like nothing happened. She goes to the restroom, I'm like, Hey, what the hell just happened? Did you know you just have a nightmare? And it's like very laissez-faire answer. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's probably just dreaming about the Khmer Rouge. That was it.
1: Before this, before he lived in an apartment with a TV and couch in San Francisco, Mike was a child of war. Not just war. The Cambodian genocide by the Khmer Rouge. His memory of the war and the genocide is spotty, like a flickering TV signal. And that's partly because of the nature of the war itself, along with their campaigns of torture mass murder, and forced labor, the Khmer Rouge agenda was to wipe out Cambodia's history altogether. The regime had a slogan. We will burn the old grass, and new will grow. Books were burned. Teachers rounded up and killed. The leader of the Khmer Rouge declared the nation would start again at year zero.
0: She tells me that they of people that has no soul. These guys are so evil that it's horrifying. I'm lucky that we survived.
1: The Khmer Rouge killed over 2 million Cambodians, nearly a quarter of the entire country's population. Those that survived, like Mike's family, were captured, relocated, and often put into prison camps or labor camps.
0: And you just literally work in the fields, like hard labor.
1: Because Mike was only four at the time, and his memory so spotty, his mom would sometimes tell him what life had been like for them in the camps.
0: She tells me a lot about there's just no food. A lot of people died off starvation.
1: Mike and his mom were separated from Mike's dad during the war. And this was another strategy of the Khmer Rouge separate family members in order to build a new society. So his dad was sent to a men's labor camp. Mike and his mom worked in a separate labor camp for four years.
0: The story that she would tell me is that, you know, when when they let you have rice porridge, they, they give you, like, almost a whole pot of water, but then they put, like, maybe not even half of, of rice in there, right? So all you pretty much do is drinking water. So she would always tell me, like, You almost starved to death. I would scoop all the rice for you, and I would drink all the water. I almost died every day.
1: As the war escalated, in 1978, the Vietnamese Air Force bombed Cambodia, and chaos began to take over the countryside. Mike's mom saw an opportunity to escape. She took her young son, and before running to the Thai border, she ran for home for her village, to look for her husband. They met him halfway to the village, on the roadside, in the middle of a war zone. This scene, the one Mike is about to describe, is a scene Mike will try to understand for the next two decades. Here's what it seems like we know. Mike heard the sounds of the bombs in the distance.
0: I think I remember kneeling down and covering my ears, and I think that that's pretty much it.
1: Here they were, by the roadside, face to face, after years of separation. Now they could all make it out of the country and out of the war together, as a family. But it turned out Mike's dad had another plan. Although it was a war, Mike's mom said that his dad didn't want to escape.
0: He says... For us to leave.
1: In fact, he wanted to be left behind. He pushed them to go.
0: You might not have a chance if you don't leave now. My mom says, no, my dad should come too. So my dad says, well, I'm not leaving.
1: The way Mike's mom described him, his dad was a patriot, a hero. A man unwilling to leave his country behind in the hands of the enemy.
0: She begged him to come.
1: So Mike and his mom escaped the Khmer Rouge. They had nothing. Only memories of their family briefly reunited. And they had each other. A few years after settling in San Francisco, Mike learned he would never see his dad again.
0: There was this one time, and I say to her, uh, well, you know, what happened to my, my, my father? She says, well, your father, he's uh, hard-headed and he's very patriotic, and he wanted to fight for his country. What can I say? He's dead.
1: So Mike lived with these blips of memories and information. And for any questions he had, there weren't places to find an answer. No real way to put the pieces together. When the history books were burned, Cambodia lost a part of its history and Mike lost a part of his. All he had left was the story of a hero who put his country first, even though it meant abandoning his family.
0: Every day of my high school life, for four years, when you, I mean, Jesus, even if I watch The Lion King, you know, you see like Musafa or whatever it is, it's like, what, what would it be like to have a father, right? And somehow one day, I think I was about 14 years old, she comes and she knocks me on the feet and she says, hey, pa, pa do I uh, know Your
1: dad's alive. Relatives in the U.S. had visited Cambodia. And one day, they saw a man on the street who they swore looked exactly like Mike's dad. So Mike's relatives started to look for him, to ask questions and to visit villages where his dad might be. And they found out Mike's dad was alive. This is not an uncommon story. For decades after the genocide, Cambodians separated from their loved ones by the war have been uncertain of the fate of their family members. Even today, people are still searching.
0: There are probably thousands of questions running through my head. You know, the first thing is, okay, if he's alive, what now? You know, after 10 years, are you gonna, you know connect? Um, can we be a family again?
1: And of course, there was the question that had always silently haunted Mike and his mom.
0: Why did my dad make that decision to stay? I can see she's dealing with it in her own way. And, and, I, and the sad part is that I'm dealing with it in my own way, but we don't deal with it together.
1: This had always been a part of their relationship. Mike's mom didn't know how to deal with the trauma of the war any other way, except on her own. So they didn't talk about it for 10 years. Until, at age 24...
0: I was about to graduate from state. I had two classes left. I mean, by God, two classes. I'm a guy from the Tenderloin that nobody expects to go to college and graduate. Why am I not happy? And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I got to, like, take care of this issue.
1: That's when Mike decided to go to Cambodia. But first, he had to tell his mom.
0: I was driving back, of course, home, and then, um... I'm prepping myself like, okay, how am I, what, what am I going to tell her? And how, how am I going to approach her? So she gets home. Usually I just wait here for her to um, uh, settle down because she's always running around back and forth. I just say, hey, I'm going to think, I'm thinking about going to Cambodia. No, that's what she says. Straight out, no. I said, well, it's been like almost 15 years and you haven't really told me much. I'm, I'm going to go.
1: Mike's mom told him it was a bad idea.
0: You, you got to be careful because your dad is um, not a, you know, he's not all that great of a person. She doesn't trust my father. I don't know why. She won't go into it. She's not making sense and nothing's making sense. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to Cambodia. I'll make sense of it myself.
1: When Mike arrived in Cambodia, he got on a boat headed to Battambang.
0: We take a, uh, an eight-hour boat ride
1: up the river to where his dad lived. He planned to spend the next two weeks there to get to know him.
0: It was six in the morning,
1: and it's hot. That's when Mike turned on his video camera and rolled tape. What you're hearing is actual footage of Mike's trip.
0: Every hour felt like probably a month or two. And I've thought about this moment, how many years, you know, X amount of years. Now I'm going to actually get to meet this guy, that that I really look up to but never even know. And I'm thinking, like, why am I so nervous? You know? In the boat, I it's like if I if I was in charge, to tell you the truth, I would have said, let's just turn it around, I don't wanna go. The driver says, We're here. So it took it felt like a long time to get there, but all of a sudden it's too quick. We get off the boat. I looked up and I immediately, immediately spotted my dad. Oh, I think they're up there, dude. I see him over there. And I said, that's my father. And my dad was wearing peasant clothes. He, he was wearing a kind of a, a yellow brownish shirt. He sits down, he points. It's like he's got this macho-ness in him, like he's confident. He's on the hill, I'm, I'm walking up, And I'm trying to go up there to just meet him. I'm running or trying to move 100 miles an hour. Everybody else seems slow. When I'm walking up, I'm just waving. And and my first word was, hi, dad. (laughs) And he didn't, he just said, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he tries to give me a hug. There's no, like, there's no high sun. it's a, it's not how I imagine it to be. I mean I swear it was it's like the awkwardest moment in my life. So that night we wanted to go to my dad's place. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's like he lives in the worst condition. The whole complex it's beat down, it's dirty. There's a broken down building like that it's went through war. There's no light, we have to use flashlights to see where we're walking to, like the third floor. Couldn't really see all the stuff, but I could tell there's no maintenance. The ceiling were, uh, uh, I guess, broken, and water was dripping down, and I think that's why I saw a lot of the mud and dirt on the stairs. Once we got there, I knew he had a family, but holy mother, there were like eight kids. It, again, it's really dark. They use candles so that we can see the, the room. And so we all sat in this kind of a, a room and everybody's all eyeing me.
1: What is it like to see his kids?
0: I mean, I, I, on one hand, I'm going through the motion of getting to know my father. You got all these kids. So I asked myself, okay, you always fought to stay with your dad in some sense. You always dreamt of, of, of living with your father
1: he realized if he had stayed.
0: This is the condition that I would live in. But at the same time, he's raising them. That night, I just kind of tried to be as respectful and polite as I can. But I'm thinking like, wait a minute, you could have done this with us.
1: Mike wanted to meet more members of his family. So he went to pay a visit to his great aunt who'd taken care of him when he was little. When he arrived there, she showed him to the back of her house, where they could sit down and talk.
0: And she starts to, like, just cry. Like, it's really awkward. It's like, why are you crying? So then she leans over, and she says, you know, if you want to know, your mom wanted to stay.
1: She told Mike that the story his mom told him, that his dad had sent them away to keep them safe, wasn't true.
0: I'm trying to register all this, God, you know, it's like, why, why is this so complicated?
1: His aunt said, that day in the war zone, when they met by the roadside, his dad had given him and his mom no choice. She told him the version of the story that she knew. And it wasn't the story of a war hero leading his family to safety while staying behind a fight. In this story, Mike's dad actually took a gun and shot at his mother.
0: Because he didn't want her to stay, He shot at her, meaning he had a gun. He had a gun and he shot indirectly at my mom. He forced her. And she says, the real reason why is because he had another wife. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this man, if that is the case. And I said, you know what, I got to talk to him. Yeah. So I'm walking up to uh, his place. He asked me, well, so what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I just want to come and in, in, in chat, right? As we sat down on the ground. So I asked him, I said, you know, um, mom, uh, you uh, forced her to leave. So he looks, he stares, and I can see that he's already worried about what to say. And he tells me what my mom tells me, which is, I wanted you guys to leave because of your future. Okay, Then I say, well, didn't you have another wife? He he looks, he goes, yeah, but
1: I, I thought you were dead. And his father told him the story as he remembered it. Then he explained that, you know, during the
0: camps, men and women were separated. You and your mom were over there, and I was in the men's camp. News came to me that you guys were dead. And when that happened, I, I fell into a depression. So this woman who happens to take care of me, you know, we, we fell in love.
1: He'd already had a child with this woman, this new woman, who he met when he believed Mike and Mike's mom had been killed. When he found out that they were actually alive, he went to look for them, just as they were trying to escape the country. That's when the three of them met on the roadside, and he decided to tell them to leave. And I, I, I see the difficult
0: dilemma that he's in: two women, three kids. Okay, I get that. But you found out we were alive. Why did you not go with us? <laughs> And I'm looking at him. He's a little surprised that I'm asking him that question. He says, "You know, I wanted you, you and your mom to go because for your uh, for your future. I think he uh, believed that." whatever he did was clear. The way he says it to me is like, this is the truth, this is how it happened, and you're asking me, and I'm telling you. You know, it's like, there's no point in talking to him at that point because he hides behind the war. Then I said, okay, I understand the war, I understand you did this for me and mom or whatever, okay, I'm not going to argue with that. But here's what I'm telling you if I'm you okay if I'm a father I would have wanted to stay with my wife and kids I'm not thinking about the war I'm thinking about you as a father he he almost cried uh he looks in the air and then you know he takes off the glasses well he first of all he looks at me and he's it's kind of like, oh, that's what he meant all this time. I can see in his eye that he gets what I'm trying to ask. I'm thinking, okay, is he going to say something that has meaning? If he would just talk and not think, like if he went with his emotion, I think that would have been what I was looking for. But instead, he shook himself from that emotion. And he wouldn't go to that that place. Somehow, the man in him shifts, and he puts down his book. He looks in, looks at me, and I look at him. There's a little bit of a pause, you know, in the ten the ten seconds that he's trying to think. He flips and throws down his journal and starts yelling at me. Then he says. Yeah, I get it, you know. um, But what you don't get is it ain't my fault. You don't understand because you didn't go through it like how we did. If you want to blame anybody about how your life is or how hard it was for you, blame it on Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Don't blame it on me or your mom. And, and, And that is what he's going to take to the grave.
1: And what do you really want from him? Like, what kind of thing do you want him to say?
0: The What I wanted to hear was very simple, was that I get what you're talking about, you know, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, you know, you, you, you had to go through this.
1: When Mike got back from Cambodia, he and his mom didn't talk about the trip. But she asked to watch all the VHS tapes he'd recorded while he was there. And at nighttime, when she thought she was alone she would watch the videos of Mike and his father together. She never mentioned it. And then, one day...
0: I'm walking in the kitchen just to grab something, and she's washing dishes. And she says, uh, and my mom's tone is, um, I saw you talking to your dad. All of it. And he's not wrong. And um, you're... You're being too hard on him. She says, he, he did think that we were dead. So I don't say nothing. I'm like, okay. And, uh, and then she just goes on about, he chose his own fate. Poor guy chose that fate. She even said it. She goes, oh, now he knows he made a mistake. He knows that. And I feel bad for him.
1: If you ask Mike about the war... He can't tell you the specifics of where he was or what exactly happened. But sometimes he'll get these flashes, these blips of being there. He'll watch a war movie and hear bombs going off in his head. But because he can't really remember, he has to choose how to remember, how to rebuild his past, starting from his own year zero
0: if I think hard enough, if I really, 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 really just sit down and think, which I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to to really get into that moment where I remember. But I remember now that they were dragging me back and forth. I don't fully think that my mom and him agreed that I should go. But I remember... Her yelling, screaming that no way she's going to leave without me. I can see the bombs still. I can see them arguing back and forth. And I'm like crying, you know, in, in, in the midst of this chaos. I'm covering my ear because it's too loud. They're pulling me. I don't know what's going on. That's when it stops. My mom tells me that he forced us. I still believe that he wanted me to stay. Big thanks to Mike Siv. Mike recently completed his first feature documentary film, Days of Justice. It's airing on PBS later this year, Keep an Eye Out. Mike is also working on a graphic novel about his experiences as a refugee growing up in America. Thanks, to to Spencer Nakasoto, the footage in this piece came from his documentary starring Mike, called Refugee. Check out more about Mike and Spencer's work at snapjudgment.org. Original score by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Liz Mack.